Okay, if this was a, if First Samuel was a TV series, you know, every chapter would start with, you know, on the last episode of First Samuel or Kings and Covenants, and you have this little flashback. And why that's important as we move into the final chapter in this book is because timelines get a little wonky the last few chapters, and events aren't arranged in chronological order. They're sort of like a very similar to Lord of the Rings. There's kind of an A plot and B and C plot happening at the same time, but they're just taking one chapter at a time and looking into it. So what's important for us to do is to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 28, where Saul is visiting the witch at Endor. He says, I want you to call up someone for me. She's like, yeah, I can do that. It happens. She's surprised. It's actually the spirit of the prophet Samuel. And Samuel says... Um, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what, you, what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands, Saul, and he's given it to one of your neighbors, David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out, carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. And then uh, Samuel gives this really haunting prophecy of doom, really, on Saul's life. He says, the Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines are gathering up north to wipe out the Israelites. And Samuel says, and tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And so the next day, chronologically, from there is where we are today. 1 Samuel 31. What we've seen in the last uh, two chapters uh, with David have been things that have been happening in parallel as Saul is seeking um, the witch or the medium at Endor. So this is the next day. 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. So if we go to the map, uh, AJ, the next slide, uh, this is just situating you. And again, I'm, the, part of the reason why I'm showing you the map is because, you know, this is a history book, uh, real events in real places that you can still go to today. You've got the Sea of Galilee to the north, and, and all of the events of this chapter um, kind of take place between Mount Gilboa, where the attack was, and then later on in the chapter, Beth Shan and uh, Jabesh Gilead, which we'll eventually get to. But this is that battle. And th in very short order, the text is wanting us to see that this is essentially a rout. This isn't even a fair fight. Israelites have to fall back. Most of them uh, fall and die on Mount Gilboa. Verse 2, the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. And the fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Um, we might jump right away to Saul being injured, but, um, you know, there, I think it's important to recognize that in sort of a very abrupt, cold, matter-of-fact way, the text just says, and like Jonathan died, he's killed. And the reason why that should affect us is because we've only seen faith and courage and faithfulness, loyalty, in some ways to his father, but more so to David, to God's will from Jonathan, this whole book. Jonathan comes out looking like one of the heroes of this book. He's always doing what's righteous. He's upstanding. He's courageous. 
He's as solid a friend as you could ask for. And so to read just his name like he was just a statistic should give us pause. And it should cause a question to rise up in us, which is, like, why Jonathan? If you can understand why a judgment would fall on Saul and why Saul has to die, or, you know, there's, even, even if we're uncomfortable with that idea, it still sort of makes sense in terms of the narrative. But why doesn't God spare Jonathan? And that sort of ties into a larger question, doesn't it? That you're going to ask at some point in your life, if you haven't already, which is, why do the innocent suffer? Why do, you know, the classic phrase is, why do bad things happen to good people? And I know there are some people theologically who say, well, there aren't actually technically good people, we're all sinners. Like, yes, but the Bible does use the word innocence, especially in the Old Testament, to describe those who have an injustice fall on them that isn't commensurate. Like, they're innocent. Um, You know, part of what we um, remember at Christmas is Herod's slaughter of the innocent boys in Israel. We don't say, well, they were sinners, they had it coming. They're innocent, right? So, yes, we're not, no one is perfect, but there's a recognition that when genuinely God-fearing good people who have shown nothing but a genuine pursuit of God when something catastrophically bad happens to them, or when they die before their time, which is what's happening here with Jonathan, um, that question rises up in our soul. Because it does seem to undermine one of the central claims of the Bible, which is that God is both good and God is just. And it's hard to hold those things in the tension with reality as we experience it on the ground level and probably as some people experienced seeing Jonathan, whom they hoped would be the successor to Saul because he was so righteous and good and courageous and awesome lying dead on the ground. Why do the innocent suffer? Why do good people perish at the hand of the wicked? The difficult answer is that sometimes the Bible just doesn't actually tell us. It is intentionally silent on the subject. There's been lots of effort poured into having um, tremendous theological, uh, sophisticated theological discussions around um, how we understand the workings of evil in the world and, and God's judgment against evil and justice and sin and how everything plays together in human agency, the divine sovereignty. But when... Um, when we come up against that question in our lives, and often when it's someone not, when it's not happening to us, but it's someone that we really care about, um, it can really, really um, shipwreck our, our walk with God. And often does for, for months or years. And sometimes in those moments, maybe oftentimes, the answer that we are reminded of through texts like this is that the Bible actually doesn't really give a definitive answer. We can, we can read books and they're good to read and I can recommend a few to you. Um, there are ways of thinking about death and tragedy which are helpful in terms of reframing, but at, at a fundamental level, there are just days where Jonathan gets up and everyone's hoping for the best and by the end of the day, he's dead. That's a tragedy. No one can actually explain why. 
And some of us that want tight, clean, understandable, packaged answers to the question of how does human agency and sin and evil and suffering and hardship and judgment all weave together. Um, you know, some of us work really hard in those moments to make it all make sense. When I was reading over uh, this chapter this week, I just was reminded that um, while that can be a good exercise, it's also important to hold on to the truth that often we're not told this side of heaven what the reason for the tragedy is. Uh, you know, one of the most influential sermons of my 30s probably was a sermon by Timothy Keller on Job's suffering. And he kind of highlighted something that's hidden in plain sight. If you've read through the book of Job, it's this huge uh, story of how God reveals himself to someone who's suffered measurably. Job loses everything. God reveals himself to Job. Job has this powerful encounter with God. God eventually restores everything. And there's sort of a, in that case, a happy ending. If you read through Job, God never tells Job why the things that happened to him happened to him. Job doesn't end the story with any understanding in terms of, oh, that's what happened. We're given some information as the reader in the first chapter about Satan's idea and this is happening. But to Job, it's just calamity. The experience of God's power and presence that humbles him and drives him to a place of saying, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Job, Job's fortunes and his life are restored, but Job is never given an answer. He learns to experience God's power and presence in a new way. And God reveals himself in the midst of that suffering in a powerful way. And so when we encounter these temptations to wonder, is God just? Is God good? This is really at odds with how I think the universe should play out. We have to remember scripture, stories like this in Samuel, and to understand and trust God's character. That God is good and God is just. We're not owed an answer. That's part of what it means to follow God in faith. And that's a bit more of a second half of life issue for many, not, you know, not all, but many people, is as death and tragedy begins to eat away at the edges of your life, this, this posture of learning to say, I'm grieving God, I'm wrestling with you, but I also am surrendered to the fact that I'm, I'm probably not going to get an answer. That becomes actually really critical to learn how to do. Through grief and worship, we can be assured that we will know God's grace in a special way. And maybe there are circumstances where God gives an answer, or over time, God provides a peace that comes through some kind of insight of knowledge. Um, but here, we're just left to trust. And you and I are left to trust that it seems really unjust and unfair that Jonathan would have to pay any kind of a price given his track record. And yet, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and will continue to bless the name of the Lord. Verse 4, Saul said to his armor bearer, 
So his men have been overrun. He's been critically injured. He says to his armor bearer, draw your sword, run me through, or these uncircumcised Philistines will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified. And that means that he wasn't scared of Saul or the Philistines. He was scared of God. Because this armor bearer has the same instinct that David does, which is you don't touch the Lord's anointed, meaning you don't do harm against them. And Saul is the anointed king. Even if the anointed king is asking you to kill him as a mercy killing, you know, sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And so this armor bearer is like, uh, no, I won't do it. So Saul took his own sword and he falls on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on a sword and died with him. Verse six, so Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that day. And a bit, a bit of a more poetic rendering of that in the English Standard Version is in verse 6, thus Saul died. And it's not meant to convey, oh, this is how Saul died, like, here are the details. It's there to be the, the sad capstone. Like, this is the manner in which he died. This is the manner in which his final few steps were taken. It's a really sad, pitiful end to a king who starts really strong and shows a tremendous amount of promise and people are excited about. But as Saul's story unfolds, he often lived with a lot more fear towards the Philistines than he did towards God. For Saul, people were very big and God was very small. And he died with more fear of the Philistines in his heart than of God. He's more concerned that the Philistines aren't going to torture and abuse him than he is facing his maker by, you could argue, in that context, certainly, in a cowardly way, taking his own life. I do want to speak here uh, delicately, but I think it's important to speak to suicide, um, which, you know, what we're seeing in Saul is sort of the culmination of what we've seen build up over his life, which is instead of honoring God and living with faith and courage, he's taking matters into his own hands. He knows the right thing to do, but he wants to do what's easiest and most expedient for himself. Now again, the sixth commandment, you shall not kill or murder every Jewish person, every Christian for millennia understood that to be um, outside of self-defense and maybe in a few situations war where um, killing another person might prevent a greater atrocity from dominoing and affecting lots of people. And even some Christians debated that. Um, human life is sacred. And all attempts to maintain a strong, flourishing life should be made. And suicide was always understood as, in a sense, you know, killing yourself, murdering yourself. And if your life has been um, touched by suicide, you know that it leaves a wake of grief and suffering that many friends and families find it difficult to recover from. Those tempted with suicide often anticipate that, they know that, but they find themselves in situations that to them seem unrelenting and unbearable. 
There just is no hope for it to stop or to ease up. And they don't feel like they have the resources, external and internal, to keep showing up day after day. That, that dual pressure of unrelenting and unbearable begins to crush someone's will to live. And in that situation, the temptation to give up is often very, very strong. Today, Canada is working to normalize uh, suicide and move it out of a place of stigma and shame through made medical assistance and dying. And the uh, goal is to provide a dignified death to those facing imminent death and suffering. It was established in 2016. Last year, in 2021, there was an amendment and now imminent death is no longer a requirement. So you don't have to be facing an imminent death within, I think it was uh, 30 days to up to a year. Um, I can't quite remember the details. They've, they've re re removed that in the name of compassion for those who might be in an unrelenting, unsustainable to them situation. In May of 2023, a second amendment takes force of law. And that is that suffering and um, a, um, and th uh, this is going to sound vague, but the uh, language of the law is vague. Suffering from a mental illness can actually now give license for the person to seek out medical assistance in dying. And that will come into effect in May. Now, I want to be careful what I say next. There are two things to consider here. Um, I've lived long enough and I've walked with enough people through pain and suffering that there are situations that come about due to disease or accidents that are absolutely heartbreaking. And there are individuals and families who are sometimes placed in situations that honestly you would not wish upon your worst enemy. And I understand the argument that some see made medical assistance from dying as a great mercy in those situations. But I want to speak to the other side of that situation. I am concerned that our culture is moving towards not just the destigmatization of suicide, but its normalization, and maybe even its valorization. Through the lens of compassion, I believe you are going to hear a steady, slow drip of reinforcement to the idea that heading off suffering is synonymous with a dignified death. Death on your terms is a dignified death. Doing what seems right in your eyes, that's what makes it dignified. And the justification for that is often already in place. And again, I want to be careful because I've walked with people in these situations. And the justification, often from the person seeking made, is this. I want it to be easier for myself and my family. 
And as hard as this is to hear for those in that situation, I think I have the courage to be able to say to them, I know I do. Suicide, no matter how planned and controlled, will not make things easier for your loved one. It will not make things easier for your loved one. And if there is someone who has committed themselves to Christ and are tempted into seeking to end their life, and this isn't a question, this isn't something that I often will say in the moment. This has to come before. Um, and I think about this through my own lens. If I, as a Christian, am moving towards deep suffering and hardship, and let's say there was even a way to objectively say, yeah, and it's only going to get worse. There is, it will be unrelenting, and in many ways it will be unbearable. The question that I should be asking. It's not that the question I want to make things easier on myself and my loved ones. That's obviously not a heartless question. That's not a heartless motivation. That's not a heartless intention. There is a thread of compassion there. But there's actually a higher question that anyone who is taking their faith seriously, seriously should ask themselves as they move towards an end like that, which is, in this suffering, how do I glorify God? In this suffering, through this suffering, how can I glorify God? Because that's always on the table. That possibility is always on the table. It is not easy in many situations to glorify God through deep and sustained and what feels like unbearable suffering. But it's still possible. And I am not naive to to the demands of that question. I personally face a future where it is unlikely I will have vision in 20 years. The, the cards are not stacked in that favor. And that's to rule out any other health complications I might have. So I think about this question a lot. What am I going to do You know, when I no longer have vision? What kind of demands is that going to place on my life? What kind of challenges economically? What kind of challenges and demands for my family, for my wife, for my kids? And one of the things that I have set in my soul to do, because I know if and when that day comes, if God doesn't protect me from that day, there will be a temptation to say, maybe it would be easier on everybody. Certainly be easier on myself to just opt out. I've said it in my soul to keep coming back to the question, how do I glorify God in this situation? How do I serve God through this suffering? And part of the reason why I want to do that is because I know, I know it, there are people in my life right now who are not Christians that if they saw me courageously, only if they saw me courageously and faithfully walking that path with God that they would seriously consider turning their lives over to Christ. How we walk into and through suffering might be the biggest testimony of our faith that we will ever have. The biggest impact you will ever have on on your friends and family will be 
how you move into and through suffering. And often, what gets people's attention is seeing one other person cling to faith and to Christ and go deeper into that faith, not because it's easy and there's all this prosperity and everything's coming up roses, but doing that in spite of really difficult and demanding circumstances. How do I glorify God? How do I serve God in my suffering? If you are tempted to end your life for any reason, then I I want you to get in touch with me. Because life is honestly worth living when you discover God's purpose and power and presence and his path for you. It really is. It's not easy. But it's worth living. And there are deeply important things that God wants to do in and through you until the day that you take your last breath. This is not the time to give up. Verse 7, when the Israelites... Um, when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. The Philistines came and occupied them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped him of his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of, uh, of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. And they put Saul's armor in the temple of the Ashtaroths and fastened his body to the wall at Beth Shan. Beth Shan is a Jewish uh, city that was taken over by the Philistines. And I just want to pause here very quickly. I won't go through all these notes, uh, AJ. Um, but I just want to make note of the fact that the, um, the Philistines send word. They send a, a message. They send a proclamation across, across the land. It's not the word in Hebrew, but it's the, it's the word from which we get good news. It's a good news proclamation. It's a proclamation of victory. We've defeated the Israelites. And part of why I wanted to pause there is to invite you to think about the fact that every culture, it's not like the church has a gospel and everyone else doesn't have a gospel. Like a good news, bottom line, here's the ticket to the good life and eternal life. Every culture and many voices within the culture are offering you a gospel all the time. They're saying, this is the way to victory. This is the way to life. This is the way to... um, uh, the good life, a full life, a meaningful life. This should be your highest priority. This is what deserves your ultimate devotion. This is what the path to salvation, or sometimes rebranded as freedom, looks like. This is the way to secure a good life. This is how to live forever. And I was talking with uh, my uh, Kara this week when we were having a conversation about this, and I said, you know, this is part of the reason why, Kara, it's really important to be in the Bible again and again and again and again and be going through it, especially the New Testament. You're learning about the gospel, the fundamental proclamation of Christianity that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, everything is different. And we can now have access to God and access to eternal life and forgiveness for sins. That in a nutshell is the gospel. You need to understand that. Because if you don't understand that, you are just at the mercy of whatever the loudest voice in the room is at your school, on social media, on TV, in your family, in your friends, of what the thing that you should be most devoted to is. Now, if you trust those people, in a sense with your soul, to say, 
I will yield to that thing. Have at it. But part of what the Bible does is it gives you an inoculation against a corrupted gospel. And whether it comes to the door of money or sex or power, you begin to see the promises of culture, even if they're well-intended as empty promises because they're not grounded in the actual gospel. If you don't know the Christian gospel and if you don't know the Christian story of creation, fall, redemption, what God is actually doing in the world, you are at the mercy of the secular alternatives in media, entertainment, uh, whatever the popular intellectuals are of the day. And again, just to put a fine point on it, these movements often have two, six, ten people at their um, nucleus, at their generative like it's a small number of people that are framing things and then millions of people are saying, I want that, I want to pursue that, I want to devote my life to that. And again, if, if you want to entrust another group of human beings because they're smart or, or popular or beautiful or successful, I mean, that's on you. But just be aware that we're being sold the gospel all the time. And that's why it's important for us not just to respond to the gospel once in faith and say, oh, I'm a Christian, but to actually realize I need to be on the path of Jesus. I need to be responding to the gospel. Verse 11, when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan, and they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. And then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they fasted seven days. Now this is powerful. Um, look at the reaction of the men of Jabesh Gilead. Does anyone even remember the term Jabesh Gilead? It's come up earlier. Does anyone even remember it? It's a long time ago. It was 1 Samuel 11. It's Rick's message, actually. It's an amazing message. But a town that was laid siege by uh, Nahash, the Ammonite, he says... I'll let, every, I'll let all of your men live. I'll let your city live. Just pluck at your right eye, which basically incapacitates their army and gives them seven days. And they, the men ask for seven days to get reinforcements. And Nahesh is like, yeah, go for it. Because there's a terrible backstory to that city and its inhabitants and full of injustice. And Nahash is kind of like, no one's going to be in your corner. All of Israel hates you guys. You take as much time as you want. But Saul comes to the rescue. And Saul actually saves the city of Jabesh Gilead. And that happened 40 years ago. So a whole generation, maybe even two, in terms of life expectancy in biblical times. It's a long time ago, 40 years, but everybody in that town remembers. One of the only bright spots in Saul's life, an early moment of heroism, where he actually cared more about doing the right thing than making his own life comfortable and safe. When I read that story, this response of these men going to Beth Shan, still occupied by the Philistines, that's a dangerous thing. You're going at the cost of your life. To retrieve his body, to give him some kind of a dignified death after mutilation. At the least we have to do is to hear that and to say, this week, honor someone in your life who has been a conduit of rescue for you. Honor those who have rescued you. 
I've lived long enough to know that um, God really can use one person to deliver you out of um, certain hardships and difficulties. And with the passage of time, sometimes we can soften in our zeal to say thank you. But maybe this is a week to say thank you, whether that was 10 years ago, 40 years ago. Maybe it was a parent or a grandparent or a friend or a pastor from back in the day. Honor those who have rescued you. Honor those people in your life who went out of their way to protect and help you, even if they weren't perfect people. Because Saul was not a perfect person. We know that. But the people of Jabesh Gilead said, he doesn't deserve the bad like that. In the previous chapter, chapter 31, David returns to his God, his true identity, his divine calling as a king to be, and we watch as he begins to unfold with this kingly generosity and kingly identity and, and just saying like, yeah, this is what it means to be Israel's king and you can begin to trace a line between David's ascendancy, his rise like a phoenix from the ashes with how Jesus is going to display himself as a king, a life of generosity and power and grace and gifts to people who are not part of his victory. And as strange as it may seem, today we see in Saul's unraveling a different foreshadowing. Because the tragic events of this last day in Saul's life mirrors the day of Jesus' crucifixion actually fairly well. And it should give us pause as we close this final chapter of 1 Samuel. Because here we see that, like Saul, Jesus went to war against the enemies of God, but didn't stop or retreat once the, the scale of the force was made known to him, he continues to move forward despite terror at the prospect. Luke tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweated uh, like drops of blood. He was crushed under the prospect of being abused and tortured and humiliated. The temptation was so strong, he even asked God the Father, said, if there's any other way we can get to this same end, please, let, can we bypass this? But then he says that your will be done. And when no other way is offered, he turns towards the cross and he never looks back. And Jesus lets himself. I mean, Saul was already dead. He couldn't stop it. But Jesus let himself be stripped and mocked and beaten and scorned and taunted and pierced and displayed for the world to see. And his enemies thought it was a victory. But it was actually his victory. A victory of love that conquered sin and death. So for 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering together to remember what that king did for us. Not 40 years ago, but 2,000 years ago. That Jesus didn't take his own life in order to save himself from pain and suffering. He entered into the deepest pain and absorbed it in order to save us. Saul's last moments were spent plotting how to secure an end to his life on his terms in order to help himself but Jesus' last moments were spent securing an end to his life on God's terms according to God's plan and God's will in order to help us and that's why on the cross John reports that he says it is finished my work here is done this morning how do you respond to that message how do you respond to that good news 
See, Saul wasn't a perfect man, far from perfect. But there was a group of people that said, we will honor that king. As imperfect a reflection of God's kingship as he is, we'll honor him. We'll at least honor his body. And if those were the lengths that these men were willing to go to, how much farther should we go to honor Jesus? Now the the comparison breaks down a little bit because we don't, I mean, they were going to honor Saul's memory by honoring his body and by giving it a proper burial. But there is, there is no body of Jesus anywhere, right? The tomb is empty. So what does it look like to honor Jesus? Well, what it means is you recognize that we are the body of Christ. We're the body. And to honor him, we respond by saying, my life is yours. My life is yours. We offer our bodies, our lives, to him. We say, for as long as I draw breath, keep coming back to that question, God, how can I serve and honor you today? How can I glorify you today? Show me, in ways big and little, your will be done in my life. And that's why Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, an ongoing sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's pray.